This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sandy Hunt, here with my dancing co-host. Nick Ashburn. I was literally standing up dancing at that point. We, we do have a great deal of fun in here, um, <laughs> talking to our guests, jamming to our, our tunes. Um, and we are excited to continue the conversation about impact investing with Rahana Nathu. She's the founder and CEO of Spectrum Impact and a longtime friend of the Wharton Social Impact Initiatives. Welcome, Rahana. Hi, guys. I like long-term friend. I'm disappointed that I'm not at the dance party. (laughs) Well, I was just thinking, you know, sometimes, (laughs) obviously, I want to be entertaining to our listeners. You know, it's edutainment, as Mm -hmm. I like to say. It's education (laughs) entertainment. But, you know, we've got our sound engineer, Dion, and and our producer, Matt Datz, behind the glass. So, you know, they just sort of stare at us blankly. So I try to give them a good show, too. (laughs) It's early. we we got to bring some energy. The dancing helps. Uh, But you can join us next time in studio, Ron. And, and we'll have a dance party. Um, so, so Spectrum Impact was founded, you know, recently in response to, you know, what you have seen and the needs you have, um, you know, have identified in the impact investing space. So, give us, you know, give us a little bit of info about why you felt the the need for Spectrum Impact to be in this in this ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. So, I think the and I'm I'm preaching to the choir here because I think the two of you and your listeners, the literal choir, Nick and I yeah. both sing. <laughs> You've seen this evolution, right, where, where in the la- course of the last decade, um, as a sector, impact investing has just astronomically increased. And that hasn't just been assets under management. That's been a range of interest from people that we weren't really expecting seven to eight years ago. And so over the course of my last 10 years watching this growth, I think the biggest takeaway was that while capital was flowing a lot more easily, um, new folks were getting into the space, the things that they were investing in was a little misaligned with the kind of change that they wanted to have. And so it was not at all um, bizarre to hear an investor, a first-time impact investor, say, well, actually, we invested in this great fund, but we didn't really see the change that we wanted to see. And so Spectrum Impact is actually taking a step back and looking at at the very first and very obvious problem in this space, which is aligning that capital with your outcomes and doing that in a way that um, is, is really forward thinking, but also long term um, and, and trying to bring that long term sustainable thinking back into the way that we're designing these strategies. And Rahana, why do you think those those problems exist in that pic- earlier picture you painted? Is it that measuring impact is difficult? Is it that it wasn't the right type of capital for the those impact issues? What were those pain points? Yeah, it, yeah, it's um, well, I'm sure we could probably spend like an hour and a half talking through all the things that we think are are taking little detours. I mean, I think for me, quite simply, the the real pain point is is actually enthusiasm and excitement. It's that we've crowded in successfully so many uh, amazing folks to the space that what the impact investing field hasn't necessarily done at scale is simplicity. And so when you are looking for um, an investment in environment, um, in private assets in the United States, the range of things that you're looking at tends to be kind of replicated. Um, It tends to be pretty obvious and it tends to be fairly common. And so folks are willing to move capital much more easily, but where they put it, I think, um, is a little bit behind the curve in terms of actually being customized and thoughtful. Um, And so 
to your point, Sandy, that the measurement side of it, the awareness side of it has actually increased uh, and increased for the better. And so we're having less of a hard time convincing asset owners and investors to get involved. I think we're losing we're losing the needle just slightly on what it is that we recommend for those very specific outcomes. And so, Rahana, are you focused primarily on the asset owner or the, you know, the source of capital? Or do you also work with companies who might want to attract impact capital? A good question, Nick. So for the most part, it's been the former. It's been asset owners, um, primarily because a lot of the impact investing work that we do is around systems change and behavior change. And I feel like the Social Impact Initiative knows a lot about this. But the idea that in these relatively large, complex institutions, um, the, the actual math of it makes a lot of sense to the powers that be. It is the value proposition on changing the way that we do business that's a little bit harder. And so because we're focused so squarely on that kind of design thinking, we work with larger asset owners. Interestingly enough, in our first six months of gearing up, a lot of folks that have expressed interest in working on this are large corporations or financial advisors themselves. And so I think we're seeing a lot more folks in the intermediary space realizing that there's a real opportunity to service their clients better. Sure. I think we see that too. Yeah. So, Rahana, you're working with these folks who say, I want to be deploying this capital more intelligently and for more impactful ends. What does the approach look like? What are the solutions? Is it creating new product? Is it uh, revising what is, you know, measured and how, um, you know, existing impact investing products are are reporting on their impact? Tell us what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of where the starting point is, is a little bit of what I wrote about on Medium that, that we, we talked about not so long ago, and that was this idea that the, the day one objective, the long-term objective of the impact investing strategy needs to be three things. It needs to be incredibly explicit, and with being explicit, it's far more intentional than I think some of the things that we've seen come out of the space in the last 18 months. That piece of the puzzle specifically is meant to address just this fear, I think, of greenwashing, of impact washing, and and a lot of savvy on the part of asset owners uh, to be able to suss that out. So I think intentionality gets baked into the strategic design process from day one by talking about what that impact looks like. And can you give us an example? What would it look like? You know, what either a a what to do and what not to do? Like, this is not explicit and this is. Give us some of that info. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. So I think the in in the process of making that intention very explicit, I think the value proposition kind of goes as follows: resources are highly constrained. Um, for most organizations, there's really only two to three years that they can experiment with this before the next big innovation comes along. And so part of the questions that we ask are: Are you willing to talk about this, whether it's a success or a failure? Is this something where you want to crowd in additional capital or you want to go at it alone? Are you in the business of basically being an impact investing advocate, either fundraising or connecting capital? Or are you interested in actually designing and investing a fund? And it's a a set of questions at the risk of being super simplistic, I think, that gets folks to think a little bit more about, at the end of five years, what do we want to say we did to contribute to this field? It is particularly surprising to me that the institutions that I, I expect to uh, quickly plant their flag as investors are not. So a lot of folks that I'm working with that are large corporations have said quite clearly that field building and capacity building is part of what they want to do. They want to be able to see the sector grow. 
Um, so I think that thought process, Sandy, about what do you have, what do you want to achieve, how much resources do you have, and what's the institutional capability to wait, that has been a really big part of solving that chunk of the puzzle. Okay. So is it, am I correct in, in assuming that it's really about asking these specific exactly. questions of the investor and making sure they have clear answers to each of them? That's exactly it. And then codifying those clear answers into an actual framework. I think part of the problem um, is that is that I think you talk to one or two folks within these organizations and you hear a really phenomenal vision, but that vision stays in that conversation. And it doesn't always translate into the plan of action, which can be everything from where resources go to just where those folks and leaders go. So I think actually translating that into a framework of we are only going to invest in things that meet this criteria around our systems change. That's probably the hardest but most fulfilling part of it. Okay. So that was point one, being explicit. I don't want to derail you from all three. This is good. No. So if point one is being explicit, then point two is definitely this long-term thinking piece. So um, a lot of that systems change value add, a lot of that idea of, well, we want to add something instead of just replicate uh, that is so difficult to do um, with one decision in one moment in time. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of reflecting back to some of the places that I've been. One of the things that I love the most about Bank of New York Mellon was that it really was a collaborative, multi-sector approach to building an impact investing strategy. But we did it through a product, one specific product. And what we didn't necessarily have in place at the time that the team now does, phenomenally so, is an actual long-term plan, right? So we'll get the fund up and running, but what after that? And what after that? And what after that? And so I think, again, in the in the process of building a framework that makes sense, it's got to extend past just the life of the fund or the investment partnership or the thought leadership opportunity. It's got to really exist in terms of long-term change. And that, to your earlier question, Sandy, also is, is a set of questions. But I think it's also a pretty sobering conversation around what partnering looks like. And a lot of these folks realize that they don't have the resources or the bandwidth to go at it alone for 10 years, but to go at it with other folks, that's a different conversation. And so, Rahana, you know, one thing I just want to make sure I'm clear on, because you talked about funds, you've talked about private markets, and does does Spectrum or most of the work you do focus on probably private equity, private debt, um, or are we also, you talked about financial advisors who are constructing portfolios across asset classes. So mm-hmm. where do you try to focus or are you open to all, all of the above? No, that's a really good clarification, Nick. So primarily it's within the private assets. And I think the reason for that is mostly because we have gotten, as a field, a little bit more sophisticated in how we talk about public products and how we make public products available. So one of the things um, that probably came up in your conversations during today's shows was just the way that we have made public products available to mass market and unaccredited individuals, right? That there's just so much more opportunity for folks like us to get involved um, through everything from what we retire with to what we save into. But what we're hearing a lot less clarity and transparency into is the private side of it. And so there, there I'd say for every one unaccredited individual that comes through and says, where do I invest? Uh, there's probably seven or eight that say, no, really, on the private side, where where do I invest? And so I think the opaqueness of that market makes the need to service that market even more even more critical. Got it. You know, I, I don't want to derail because we still have, I think, the third, the third. point. <laughs> let, well, let, let's get to the third point, too, because then I wanted to talk about companies and data. Yes. No, great, great question. So. So the third point, I think, is the is the um, is the piece of it that that ties it all together, and that is thinking of impact investing as a complementary strategy and not a silver bullet. 
Um, and I think we've, the three of us, have seen this happen actually quite a bit. The idea that, that impact investing for some organizations is a call to fundamental organizational change. Mm-hmm. It is a behavior change, but for a lot of these folks, impact investing is just one additional tool in the toolbox. It's another layer of viewing things, it's another layer of thinking of, about things. And it's certainly not, I think, um, when recommended correctly, it's certainly not advocating for everything to change. And so part of this discovery process with a lot of our clients is talking about what they do best and finding a way to build impact investing strategies that complement that. And I think in the spirit of this conversation, that seems quite simple, but it's really astounding to me how many organizations think they need to sort of clear the board and start from scratch. And so I think for the for the betterment of the field, but also the betterment of their own resources and competencies, thinking about, thinking about impact investing being complementary is a really big part of what we do. Right. So just to unpack that a little bit, yeah. you know, there are ways that there are a lot of avenues to have impact and Mm -hmm. there are, you know, you can continue philanthropy, you can continue volunteering, you can work with nonprofits. You can also think about how do I invest it, you know, whether through a fund or directly into companies that I think will have an impact as a Mm -hmm. for-profit company. And then also potentially across, you know, maybe public equities when I'm thinking about public companies, you know, maybe I'm, shifting my capital to companies that I think are more impactful or by by proxy voting, I can influence, you know, the actual practices of the business. So it's just being sure that people understand the suite of opportunities within their investment capital or philanthropic capital, how they can have an impact. Is that sort of what we're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly right, Nick. And I think it's that it's that level of diversity across the product offering that's quite critical. One other thing you said that I think really has come up in conversations in our first six months is the piece about philanthropy. So a lot of, about half of our clients are private clients. So as I mentioned earlier, corporations, financial advisors, but the other half are INGOs and family offices. And in in the second bucket, it's there is a very important moment in the process talking about how impact investing is not meant to replace charitable giving. Um, and I think the more that folks feel the pressure internally and externally to move towards impact investing strategies, the more that there is concern that this is going to cannibalize their giving. Uh, and we're very, we're very clear and intentional about our own message that that is not at all the case. Um, and so I think there's, there's diversity across the products, but then also diversities, diversity excuse me, across the types of capital, Nick, that you pointed to. That's a really important part of this conversation that I think we miss in the excitement of just moving more assets. Yeah, and I just want to remind our listeners, you are listening to Rahama Nafthu teach you about impact investing here on Dollars and Change on Business Radio Sirius XM 132. And on that last point, Rahana, you know, I, I, I like to throw out this figure just to make sure that our listeners understand, especially when we are also not necessarily advocating for less philanthropy or like don't give or anything like that, because mm-hmm. I think what I think I said this on the show a couple of weeks ago with another with another guest. When you think about the real numbers of philanthropy, yes, they're increasing in terms of like where we went from like 300 billion, maybe we're up to closer to 400 billion. But really, as a share of the pie, the share yep. of money in the world, it's not growing. It's what, 6%? Right. 2%, I 2%? think. Of, of like you, at least US figures, okay. I think it's around 2% of GDP or 2.5%. So we're, so it's sort of like it's not what we're trying to actually do is, it is expand the pie to say, Keep giving, but are there other ways from the the capital that we can access, whether you're a non-accredited investor and it's through your retirement account or through, you know, private 
private markets like you're able to work in, how else can you have an impact? How can mm-hmm. we shift? I mean, really thinking classic classic economic principles of supply and demand. Where am I pushing with my purchasing power or with my you know investment dollars toward a better world? I mean, that sounds Pollyanna, but that's really what we're talking about. Yeah. And one thing that we often say around uh, here, because that, that same criticism or question will pop up a lot in our work where it's saying, so are you are you anti philanthropy? Are you saying that should right. go away? Or, you know, government that government financing and philanthropy are not necessary. We're here to say they're absolutely necessary. They're just not sufficient. But if Correct. if if business can do all all it can, if impact investing can sort of lighten the demands on philanthropic capital and government capital, it leaves them to do the things that only they can do, or that that capital can best serve. So it's saying, look, you know. We're going to talk to Danone next. If they can help water, you know, improve water purification and water quality and water waste a little bit, and some nonprofits don't have to focus on that or governments don't have to spend on that, they can spend on their, you know, on their on their citizens with some intractable social issues that can't be financed by business. I think that's right. And that need point that you both that you both alluded to is is usually where we start, quite frankly. So majority of the folks that we work with we only have one uh, client working domestically. The rest are focused quite internationally. And, you know, we, we start with all of the data that we all have access to, which is around financing the sustainable development goals. And the, the true fact of it is just the math doesn't add up, right? So in order to be able to finance them by 2023, we need about $30 trillion. Development flows last year were about $600 billion. So without actually accessing an $80 trillion plus capital market, there's no way to make that formula compute. And so to both of your points, I think when we talk about what else do we need to do to get to our outcomes, it is philanthropy and it is uh, thought leadership and. So that, that needs piece really has helped for a lot of our international clients just level set the problem. Right. And, you know, we whether we talk to Danone next or we have talked to the chief scientific officer of PepsiCo, you know, right. they are – saying this is also these like the SDGs, the sustainable development goals, these are also business imperatives. Like if we don't fix these problems or like say what what's within our power as a corporation to influence, we're not going to have customers. We're not even going to be in business, you know, after a short period of time. So I do want to say like this is in my mind and I think your mind too, Rahana, is, you know, these are virtuous cycles. They're they're all connected. Um, But I wanted to shift quickly um, to something that just I can't believe I've not thought about this, uh, but I think I was reading a couple of days ago and online just the role of data in all this. And I'm not talking about impact management per se, as we think about in the impact investing industry, like how are we measuring our impact? How are we sort of managing impact? But really thinking about the corporate side or the, you know, the for-profit business yeah. side and just how the natural rise of data within the corporation that people are tracking anyway, key performance yeah. indicators and the technology that is able to prov- to power that within the company that maybe they're able to report on differently. I wanted to get your take on, um, it's more a theoretical question, but where do you, you know, what is your view on this natural evolution of data within the company and then how we're able to, what we're able to ask of companies as investors, either in public markets or in private markets? Like right. where do you, where do you see the link there? Yeah, it's it's a good question, Nick, because it's, it's, I feel like the last time that we were on the show together, we were looking at a drastically different world where data, data we had just started started talking about data and impact investing. Mm-hmm. And all this time later, we are now talking about different systems towards the same problem, which is phenomenal. So it's, it's, um, it's particularly salient because one of, the, one of our clients in New York um, that is a digital financial advisor 
um, uh, is building uh, products, uh, new products for the accredited um, for accredited audiences, and struggling in very real time with this idea of measurement. And what is so interesting about this process has been sort of out of the gate, we have said, look, we need a framework. It needs to be a standardized framework. It needs to be a measurable framework. And as recently as 18 months ago in that same conversation, you would have had an advisor come back and say, well, you know, we don't really have the bandwidth or the systems or the capabilities. This time around, the answer was automatically, of course we do. Of course we do, because why would investors take us seriously? Of course we do, because why wouldn't we invest in that kind of technology infrastructure? So somewhat anecdotally, Nick, it, it's really interesting to me that the, the folks that, that as recently as two years ago would have said we cannot afford that kind of investment are now understanding that to get investors on their side, it's an imperative. I think one of the things that I'm really excited by um, is the way that we are bringing current metrics and frameworks into technological platforms. So um, Iris, which has been with us, gosh, since the beginning, um, over time watching the way that Iris is used, the way that Iris frameworks are created, and then the way that they now are able to sync with other data aggregation platforms, to me is astounding and amazing. Um, so I am still, I think, a little old fashioned. I think <laughs> the ability to customize what we're measuring and to do it periodically is, is the best and most exciting part for me. Um, personally, I haven't yet seen the, the framework um, technologically that's going to make that a whole bunch easier, but that is changing in real time, and that is astounding and incredibly exciting. Excellent. We've got two minutes left, so I'm, I'm getting judicious about which questions I want to make sure we cover. <laughs> um, you know, for our listeners who are, you know, who are not at the, the scale to be, you know, bringing in your in your firm, Rahana, to help mm-hmm. them with their impact investing, um, but are curious about, you know, how they what they can learn from you about how to think differently about their impact investments, what advice would you have? Yeah, that's a, such a good question, Sandy. And I think we, we, you guys must get it a ton, but we get it all the time. And I think it, it, at the risk of being overly simplistic, I think the real answer is what are you trying to do? Um, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to change? And then what resources do you have at your disposal? So earlier, Nick was talking about the 401k plan, the savings plan, the robo-advisor. All of those are now channels to be able to exercise impact. There is a level of responsibility that I think as folks in the field, we have two new folks in the field about not taking unnecessary investment risks. But I do think that in every single, almost every single product that is out there for the average individual, there are impact options. And so really, I think the starting point is just asking questions, demanding some of those answers from plan providers and from intermediaries, and then doing a little bit of soul searching internally about what kind of risk is acceptable. And the reminder, of course, which which you guys know well through your work, that that impact investing evolution for every individual is an evolution. So whatever resources are available today may not be available in a few years and maybe so much more. So it is an evolution. And I think reminding folks that this journey is, is a continuing one. So if you don't feel like you're in it today, you will be. Just ask the question. Excellent. Thank you, Rahana. Rahana Nathu, founder and CEO of Spectrum Impact. Great conversation with you as always. You are listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.